Hi, and welcome to season four of the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast, sponsored by the Diversity Movement. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, equality advocate and certified diversity executive. On this show, we discuss how diversity, equity, and inclusion benefit our workplaces, schools, and communities by sharing the stories, insights, and best practices of game changers, leaders, and glass ceiling breakers that are doing the work to make our world a more understanding, welcoming, and supportive place for us all. Welcome to a special live podcast hosted by Fishbowl, a platform for professionals to connect and interact with other professionals in their field. Thank you everyone for being here and for giving space for this important conversation. So as our society becomes more diverse, it's more important than ever to understand strategies to recruit and retain top talent. Leveraging the benefits of a diverse workforce include boosts in innovation, productivity, market share, and profitability. But bias in recruiting can start even before your interview process begins. So today we're talking about inclusive recruiting strategies for any business. I'm your moderator, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, co-founder of the diversity movement and host of the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm joined by two incredible recruiting experts, Bree Sarlotti, CEO of Peak Performers, and Lauren McDonald, CEO and founder of Intuition Co-op. Bree and Lauren, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you I'd for like having to- us. Yes, yes, I'm so excited. And I'd like to give each of you just a few minutes to share a bit about yourselves. You each have such interesting backgrounds and and journeys. Bree, let's start with you. Sure. All right. Well, Peak Performers is kind of, it spans the entirety of my life story, I guess you could say. So first, what is Peak? We are a nonprofit staffing company based in Austin, Texas. Been in business since 1994. And we have kind of a niche within a niche. We specialize in staffing professional positions for public sector organizations. So state agencies are our main customers at this time. And what makes us a nonprofit is that we give hiring priority to individuals with disabilities and chronic health conditions. So my story with Peak is that I began consulting on special projects with Peak in about 2011. And it was after college. I majored in anthropology, which is not so useful out there in the workforce, as it turns out. You can have really interesting conversations with people, but finding a job kind of challenging, at least with an undergrad degree. So I was seeking something to do that really mattered. And I was looking for something that would have a bigger impact and that would, you know, it was kind of a crisis actually for myself at the time, trying to figure out what I could do, what I wanted to do. So I started working for a couple of jobs and, you know, dabbling here and there like people out of college do. And then I started working with Peak part-time doing special projects and marketing and media-related work. And then I was offered to join Peak full-time in 2015. And I started in the proverbial mail room, which was at the time our doing recruiting support for IT staffing department. And I found that I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the work as it turned out. Again, it had nothing to do with my academic background or what I thought I'd spend my life doing, but I really liked I'm like a puzzle person and a perfectionist. And I loved the matchmaking element of like, okay, I'm looking for this candidate who has these types of skills and finding the right perfect fit for that job and that client so that everyone's happy and successful. 
So the reason that peak has been all throughout my life is that um, the business was actually started by my father, Charlie Graham. And we started on a succession path together after I'd been there for a couple of years. And he retired earlier this year from CEO position. And so I'm now the uh, sole CEO. And I'm so proud um, of what we're doing. And we're we have an amazing team of really, really dedicated staffing professionals who also really care about our mission and what we're doing and who we're employing. So last year, we employed over a thousand individuals. And these are in primarily professional positions. So we do office and administrative kind of jobs, but also we do a lot of finance and accounting, IT and technical roles, and basically anyone who would be working in an office. So for us kind of at this stage, the sky's the limit, and we're really excited about where we're going. Bree, thank you so much for sharing that. Lauren? I was just listening to Bree. I have so many questions for her, so I was like writing them <laughs> down. So when we connect, I want to hear more about your story. That was amazing. I hope I can live up to your great description. I'm Lauren McDonald. I've been a recruiter in October. It will be 30 years. I've been a recruiter since 1991. Started off at a talk show called The Maury Povich Show in the basement in the worst department, which was the audience coordinator. And it was a really incredible time because talk shows were talk shows were all the rage, right? Pre internet Mm -hmm. typewriters and that were plugged into the wall fax machines. And we had to have an, a live audience five days a week. And so I learned to my the first the beginning stages of being a recruiter. And we were competing with like, so many other, so many other talk shows. And it was all the rage. And there's no option, but you have to you, you have to fill the audience, you know, so I have a really different background than most recruiters. I'm very upfront. And my background, I won't, I won't, tell you all about my background because we'll be here for a while. But I did sue for sexual discrimination and hostile work environment when I was 22. Mm -hmm. So by the time my friends were coming out of college, I don't have a degree. I decided to work instead of going to college. I had a learning disability, still do, doesn't leave you. And I and I excelled at work. So I started my junior year of college working full time. And so by the time I was 23, I had four years of, you know, recruiting experience. And worked for two companies. The latter I wound up suing because the man hated women. The man that I worked for. Mm -hmm. And did some great work. And just committed myself to recruiting because I was foolish in believing that a recruiter would be honest with you. I always thought, I landed this job in the newspaper. And if I had been a recruiter, then maybe I would have prevented it from happening. That's how naive I was. But I never placed anyone, pushed anyone into a role. If a company wasn't the right fit for someone, I would tell someone, stay where you are. And I fought discrimination since I'm almost 23 years old. So when we talk about diversity and recruiting, I've been that, that person engaged in that conversation and many times a heated argument with companies that I disagreed with the way that they operated their recruiting strategies. I was the head of recruiting for three companies in my 20s, which I really didn't think was a big deal then, but all the three roles were all created for me. And then I've been on the agency side. For those of you who don't know, there are two sides of recruiting, Mm -hmm. agency side and client side. 
So I prefer the agency side. I have my own agency now for 12 years. I've been through three recessions, which is really challenging. After the first one, you learn your lesson. And I was committed through the early 2000s to never giving up. And I am known as being transparent, not transactional. And that's how I live my life. And I love what I do. I'm really good at it at almost 50. My little boy thinks I'm turning 29. But... (laughs) He really, truly does. He thinks my husband and I have a huge age difference, but it's only six months, but we keep that away from him. (laughs) He'll figure it out. He'll figure it out soon. But all these years, I've been the same person, you know, and I really, truly believe in people, not corporations. And I have a general disdain for those in HR. If you follow me on LinkedIn, I'm very transparent about that. So, but I love what I do. I'm honored to be here with you. I love what Fishbowl's doing. I love what you both are doing in your respective careers. Lauren, thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk about why inclusive recruiting is so important to business. And I'll let either of you start with that question. Sure, I'm happy to. So at Peak Performers, we deal with a very specific type of inclusive recruiting agenda, which is that we recruit primarily people with disabilities and chronic health conditions. So that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. And that's what we do a lot of education for our clients around. So one of the analogies that I've come up with over time is, you know, this thing, oh, we're all using it right now. It's a smartphone or an iPad. So you think of the features that you use on your phone and like everyone has one of these. These were designed so that everyone would have one, you know, and have it in your hand, in your pocket, always accessible. So a lot of the features that we use throughout the day in using our phones are actually the kinds of things that were originally intended for people who had limitations of some kind in how they could use technology. So like, okay, if we've ever zoomed in on a photo by using that little like pinch motion, that's one, a common one. If you're using Siri when you're driving, maybe it's that, hey, I don't need to use Siri all the time, but it's handy when I shouldn't be taking my eyes off the road. So The point is that even though the majority of us users with our smartphones don't have, let's say, a visual impairment where we need to be able to really zoom in on the screen regularly or where we need to have everything dictated to us and dictate in return, but fundamentally, everyone benefits from it. So it's this concept in technology that's called universal design, which is that Mm -hmm. if we're designing things for everyone to be able to use it, then everyone benefits regardless of how they're interacting with the technology in this case. So I see inclusivity in the workplace as kind of similar. It's that even if you're not deliberately um, trying to target one demographic or another through either your hiring, which can be the full recruiting process from how you post the job to the whole um, cycle of interviewing people and selecting, all the way through what it's like to actually work there and what the management structure is. So regardless of who you're employing, if you design it to be deliberately inclusive of everyone, fundamentally everyone benefits, everyone feels more included, more welcomed, more supported. Absolutely, Brie. Lauren? That's amazing. That's a great description. My mom is going blind right now and my grandmother went blind and I had a friend of mine that I worked with who was blind and You know, I just think that I was, I came into recruiting from a different perspective. I just think everyone deserves a fair shot. I think that everyone who wants something and who has a skill set should be able to 
demonstrate their skill set, make sure that you're the right fit. And I've just never been, I'm sorry, but I've just never been a sorority fraternity person. I just have a general disdain for that kind of vibe. I think that's why I have a tough time in the suburbs with all the Lululemon moms. Like when everyone looks the same, it's a bit exhausting. And I just don't understand how corporations don't, I struggle with not understanding why corporations don't want different perspectives and different point of views in their organizations because the clients that they serve, you know, if they sell cars or they are a consulting service or if they're an Ernst and Young, don't they want to offer a different perspective for their clients? I just think that I think that everyone should have a fair shot. And I think as I get older, I get angrier about the fact that there are people who don't want a diverse, inclusive organization. Yeah. And, you know, I think that more companies at this point are realizing, not all, the business benefits of having a diverse workforce. And when I say diverse, I also mean those voices have a seat at the table They're able to contribute to what's happening with regard to decisions in the company. They have a voice in marketing. That's how innovation happens. Companies that are more diverse and are able to leverage their diversity well generate 19% more revenue Mm -hmm. through innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's not even talking about the productivity opening up different markets to be able to, you know, create messaging that resonates with lots of different groups. You know, again, our society is becoming more diverse. So we're not marketing anymore to one demographic. Mm -hmm. We've got to understand how to market to multiple demographics. So thank you both so much for sharing that. Before we get into bias and recruiting, let's talk just quickly about the definition of bias. So from my perspective, simply put, biases are the assumptions that we make about other people or things based on a number of factors. And biases can be in favor of or against something. And usually they're inaccurate. (laughs) So any thoughts on bias or any expansion to that definition? And then we'll jump into bias and recruiting. I was thinking about this, the meaning of bias. And I know that the word, the phrase unconscious bias is one that's thrown around a lot, Mm -hmm. at least for those who are paying attention to these kinds of topics. And so, you know, I was doing a little reflection and thinking about one that I've actually encountered within our own organization. And we consider ourselves, you know, fairly fairly woke to these kinds of issues. But for years, we had a requirement for certain positions internally, staff positions, that you had to have a college degree. Yes. And, you know, I, I think it, that's maybe a bit of an outdated requirement. But, you know, it was, it was almost like we were mirroring our own clients who often have these really unwavering requirements on their jobs. Um, which is like, oh, we have to check the box. If you don't check the box, you do not pass go. Mm-hmm. Which as recruiters, we know that's really challenging because you have like, yeah, I have the great, I have the perfect candidate, but they don't meet this requirement if you just be flexible, you know, and, and talk to them or something. So at one point we, we turned that in our, on ourselves and said, hey, well, we've got a great candidate. Let's really revisit this requirement. And once we did, and we realized actually 
that we had been excluding unintentionally a certain category of highly qualified individuals, but people who had taken non-traditional paths early in adulthood in the times when most of us would be going to college. So a lot of people that I've encountered who fall into this category are like the children of military veterans who've maybe moved around a lot and their, their lives can take very different trajectories than people who stayed in one place their whole lives. And also women who had children at a very young age. So again, during those years when they'd usually be in college, instead they're, they're raising little kids. So by revisiting that requirement, I went, holy cow, we're, we're actually unintentionally writing off entire groups of people based on this requirement. So then we, what is that requirement really getting to? And, you know, looked at it really from the skills perspective rather than a, a piece of paper perspective. And I'm proud to say that by relaxing that requirement, we have actually made some of our absolute best hires in recent years. So that's the kind of thing that I think about with bias is that it's the things that you're, you're not even considering because you're just going along the track that you've been told or been taught through various sources to follow. Bree, that's so true. So true. You know, just a quick note, and then I'll pass the mic to Lauren. You know, the CEO of my company, the Diversity Movement, left college. And throughout his career, he has led several organizations to successful exits. He has, you know, invested in multiple companies. And it's really interesting, you know, how many no's he got early on in his career because he didn't have that degree, right? So totally get that. You know, you have to think, you know, to quote my podcast, you know, beyond the checkbox, right? So you have to think about the scrappiness and the work ethic that comes with people that it's not tied to that diploma, right? So I totally agree with that. Lauren, I'll pass it to you. So I'm that person you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. I'll do a I'll do over a million eight next year and I don't have a degree. I was very fortunate to have work experience from when I was 19, but you want to talk about people who insult you. I mean, it's despicable. So I interviewed with someone once and he said a dog could get a college degree. Oh my goodness. I've been on the other side of this. So I think it's pathetic. I don't have anything but respect for people with degrees. I also don't look down on electricians and plumbers. That's a special sort of someone. But I think that the bias that people have is because they won't challenge themselves to get out of their own way or, you know, you look at the, I mean, I've had, I've had arguments that you would not believe with hiring managers in HR. I, I honestly can't believe that these people have jobs. The insults that are thrown, the words that are used, and it's acceptable. So I think, you know, I gently disagree. I think we haven't even, we're nowhere with diversity, with recruiting, with organizations. I applaud the companies that are diverse in their population and the and their employees and their and their vendors and all that but I just don't see it I think they go to give good lip service but and they advertise they mark they know how to market it but I see the other side of it and I think it's disgusting and it's they can get away with murder just by saying we don't like their font I mean they don't give you a reason why they're not hiring someone so I've always been comfortable having uncomfortable conversations and I think people need to get out of their comfort zone and 
I could go on and on. But yes, are we making some strides? Sure, absolutely. We have a long way to go. Lauren, that I agree with. We do have a long way to go. But I do think that there are organizations that are understanding what it means to prioritize the culture of your workforce. And, you know, as slow moving as that is as a country, right, as a society, are making movement in that direction. And that's a good thing. But you're 100% right. We do have a long way to go. There's there's so much bias in, you know, simply the way that we start our recruiting from our, the way that we write our job descriptions. You know, there's a, a study that shows that white men will a- apply to a job that they feel 60% qualified for, whereas women and culturally diverse candidates need to feel closer to 90% qualified. And so a lot of those, you know, like to haves on the job description can exclude some really great candidates. And then you get into, you know, name bias and school bias and even address bias when you're looking at resumes. And then once you're, you know, in front of someone, you know, there's there's a, a couple of ways to go with bias. You know, there's the negative bias, but then you've also got the positive bias, right? And and for those of us who have interviewed, and I'm sure there are many of the folks that are in this bowl right now that have interviewed candidates, you know, if you find that you have something in common, right, whether that be a school or a hobby or whatever, you're spending half of the conversation talking about that thing you've got in common and really haven't evaluated if this candidate is qualified to do the job. So there's bias that can go either way. But anything else that we want to talk about with regard to recruiting bias? And then I also want to get into some strategies that both of you recommend to mitigate that bias all the way from job description to onboarding. So I'm interested in your thoughts there. Take off your zip code. Take off your address. There's no need for anyone to have their resume with their address on it at this point. There should be no zip codes. There should be your phone number and your email. So, I mean, I used to have positions. Let's say I had a position years ago, years and years ago in Connecticut. They'd be like, oh, we're not going to hire someone from Brooklyn. Brooklyn to Connecticut. I mean, the amount of people that I could have placed over the last however many years that were in San Francisco, that the job was in Chicago and they wouldn't even consider them. You know that I'm a huge person about not sharing. I don't know how many people know that about me. Stop oversharing. A hundred percent. If you're pregnant, don't tell them. You don't owe it. That is no one's business if you're pregnant. You don't have to advertise your age. Age discrimination is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And I really think that you just have to really work hard in understanding what you're up against. I really think that you have to work on your, almost you have to work on your self-esteem as much as you're going to put that resume together on your Word doc. And understand what you're up against. I also believe you should not make assumptions. You can't make an assumption that because someone, you know, there was someone once and they said, you know, all these white guys that wear like flat front khaki pants. And it's like, they're just describing people. And it's like, you don't know that that person isn't, my dad had a diverse team that that worked for him and he was very careful about that to make sure everyone had a seat at the table and that's how I was raised 
just don't make an assumption based on the fact that if someone, if someone doesn't get back in touch with you, that they could very well be a jerk, but don't make that assumption and don't put that on them just because one person is that everyone is. Does that make sense? Zip codes, mm -hmm. addresses off. They don't need to know how much you, where you live, how much you spend on rent. I've worked with people who have a lot of money and they're discriminated against because they think, well, they don't need the job. Why not? You know, I think also dates on resumes is a job, job jumpers, people, they say people jump in jobs. Does that resonate? They're discriminated against. If mm -hmm. you're laid off by a company, why are you discriminated against? People say, oh, they jumped around. No, sweetheart. They survived. Got so it. being really careful with dates, that, those would be my suggestions. Bree, would you like to share? Yeah, all of those tips really resonate. You know, we've one that, that I see have seen so many times is I think people do it without even realizing they put the year that they graduated from college. Uh -huh. And although some people, as we talked about earlier, can follow non traditional kinds of paths in their education, it there is a chance that if you're, you know, if you're putting a college graduation year that was in the seventies, let's say, that you're opening yourself up towards a discrimination that you just you really don't need to draw attention to. That's that's one that I've seen a lot. And, you know, as, as a staffing company, because we act as like the buffer between our customers and the candidates, one of the tricks that we've used is actually, and, you know, a person applying for a job couldn't do this, but agency can, where we'll, we'll take off the person's name and we'll use initials instead. If we feel like perhaps the client is not even considering them because they have a name that might sound foreign, you know, oh, I don't know how to pronounce that. So instead, everyone gets initials on their resume. <laughs> And I can tell you that we've, our, our clients, we have not received any pushback on that one. So people are remarkably open to that because I think they don't really question why we're doing it. They think it's, you know, confidentiality or something. Mm -hmm. Love that. Love that. One thing that I'd like to share as well, and thank you both so much for the, for those tips from the other side, right? From the, the hiring company, the hiring manager side, just understanding how to properly interview for your diverse candidates. So make sure that you are asking the same questions uh -huh. and, and not, not over ask, right? Don't over engineer it. Make sure that you still have an organic conversation, but make sure that you've got six to eight questions that you're asking every single candidate so uh -huh. that you're comparing skill set versus skill set rather than, as I said, earlier, you know, having a whole conversation about the fact that you went to the same college or grew up in the same hometown, make sure that you're comparing skill set to skill set and then have other people in the room. Make sure your diverse, your interview team is diverse uh -huh. because they'll balance your bias, right? So everyone has some level of unconscious bias. So make sure that you're putting people in the room that are going to evaluate that candidate different than you evaluate that candidate so that you make the right decision for your organization. Love those tips. Thank you both so much for that. Yeah, Jackie, I'll add, if anyone listening here is in a position where they're posting jobs, and if you're interested in exploring your own bias, there's actually a really, really cool t uh, tool. It's an online tool called Textio. It's amazing. You, you basically plug in the text of your job description, and it gives you all kinds of feedback on it. But it's specifically to address that kind of unconscious bias. Absolutely. That's a great, great ad, Brie. Thank you. 
So Bree, let's talk about employment for professionals with disabilities. And I just led a build of an e-learning course on disability inclusion, and I learned so much. What are some of the challenges with professionals with disabilities, and what do employers need to know about employing professionals with disabilities? Oh, yeah. Well, this is this is a favorite topic of ours. This is one that comes up pretty often, especially because a lot of people have some hangups or really lack of education, lack of understanding about what it means to employ someone with a disability. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, uh, one of our staff members who does a bunch of community engagement and PR kinds of speaking engagements, one of the things that he's fond of saying is that disability itself doesn't really discriminate in that it affects people across all demographics. So everyone else that we're talking about, regardless of gender, uh, race, age, everything, disabilities affect everyone. So that's they're kind of the great equalizer in that sense, which is kind of a backwards way of approaching it, I think. But fundamentally, from the employer side, there are actually fewer challenges than you would think with employing someone with a disability. So at peak, we use the ADAAA, which is the Americans with Disabilities as Amended Act, a definition of disability, which includes people with the types of disabilities that you typically would think of. You know, when people think of someone with a disability, they're often picturing someone who needs some kind of very visible accommodation, such as like a wheelchair or a hearing aid or something. But the actual legal definition of disability in this era and in this country spans a really, really broad range. So it includes a lot of invisible disabilities um, and chronic health conditions. So really common ones that we see that people don't even think about usually, depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, and we see a lot of PTSD. So if an employer were to look around their office, they might have an idea of who, if they asked them to self-identify, who would say, oh yes, I am, I'm black, I'm Hispanic, I'm male, I'm female, those kinds of categories. But do you think you can look around the room and find the people who would self-identify as having a disability or chronic health condition? Mm. Sometimes, maybe, yeah. Like I said, if there's something very visually going on with them, but equally likely, no, you'd have no idea. And also these kinds of conditions like uh, depression and anxiety and ADHD and ADHD often carry really substantial social stigmas. So people are really less inclined to talk about them too. And what the, what the data has found is that people who do disclose their conditions to their employer, the person they're most likely to disclose to is their immediate supervisor. So the reason for that is that that's the person who has the biggest power to impact that individual's ability to get the job done. They're not often going to HR unless perhaps they've tried to go to their supervisor and they felt like they didn't get anywhere. Or maybe they have a new supervisor and they don't have that rapport going. So unfortunately, the supervisors who are kind of on the front lines there, they're often the least prepared to have those conversations in an informed, educated way because frankly, not a lot of training is usually provided, especially um, in smaller organizations for people at that level. So one of the things that, that we advocate for at PEAK, like when we consult with our clients, is for ADA-related training at all levels, which fundamentally can help foster an environment of understanding rather than fear when someone mm-hmm. comes to you with that conversation. Absolutely. And you know, it's such an important conversation and it's so important for employers to realize and understand 
that having a culture that's inclusive of, of professionals with disabilities is important. And, and one of the reasons is because unlike other diversity groups, the disability community is the one group that any of us can become a part of at any time. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so because of, you know, of that fact, you, I want to work for a company that has disability inclusion as part of the fundamentals of that culture. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. So important. So important. Lauren, you talk about being the headhunter of yesteryear. Yeah, on your LinkedIn. Yeah. And I know that that has to do with the establishment of relationships and trust. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that phrase and what that means in your business and for your business. I feel that everything is relationship based. Yeah. Right? And I'm not transactional. And I can't work with everybody, but I'm upfront about that. So, you know, years ago, you would have people that, I don't know that everyone even understands how it works, but, you know, there are lots of different types of recruiters. There's lots of different ways that you can work with a headhunter. A headhunter is different than a recruiter. Recruiters can headhunt. Headhunters can recruit. It's really very, it's a really big field. But my vibe is that I worked my entire career and I was focused on the person, okay? Because- I built teams and I built teams and I built diverse teams and I built teams where I went into a company and I had one, uh, we call them job orders, right? And then, then I would place 140 people and people were friends and they were godmothers to each other's children and they I all still keep in touch. And I'm really concerned mm-hmm. about culture. I'm really concerned about fit. I'm really concerned about people working well together. I think that when you have a headhunter or someone who's a recruiter, really skilled or really knowledgeable, like Bree or myself, where you would go into a company and say, hand it over to me, I'll fix your problems. Because companies don't go to recruiters because they want to spend money. Companies go to recruiters because they can't fill the jobs. I don't Mm -hmm. know if everyone knows that. Unless you have a, you know, obviously Brie has a different type of business. But when you look at someone like me, the companies aren't running to you saying, here's some money. Can you go fill us? They're annoyed because they can't. And oftentimes you have to say the reason that you can't is because you're doing it the wrong way. So if you can partner with the companies, I believe that that's a headhunter of yesteryear where there was more of a focus on the person than the fee. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, If you're transactional and you're only concerned about fees, recruiters are recruiters who like Brie or myself or her dad who've been around for a long time. You know, we weren't, we're not focused on the fee. This is, this is what we do for a living. It's very, I think obviously for Brie and for myself, very mission based, but my concern is the person, not the company. And has always been that way since I'm 23 years old. Mm, So important. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. So I believe recruiting diverse talent is integral to the sustainability of business, the demographic shifts in our society that we talked about earlier. How does diversity in our workforce benefit business? Don't hate me, but here's here's a little bit of numbers. So again, coming at this from the the disability lens, 45% 
of the American population has at least one chronic condition. Oh. 26%, that's a quarter of people have some kind of disability, something that we would recognize as a disability. So from my perspective, if you are a business that is hoping to serve the American public or American companies through either products or services, and if you are not employing individuals with disabilities and chronic medical conditions, then you're missing out. You're missing out on key insights into how your customers think, into what matters to them, to the challenges they face. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like creating a smartphone without Siri. It leads you to blind spots that you're, you're missing if you're not bringing a diverse group of people to the table. Brie, love that. And just, just a note for everyone who's listening, Siri was created by a professional with a disability for, you know, to accommodate people with disabilities. And that's one of the many accommodations or adaptations that all of us use. So thanks for sharing that. Lauren, what would you like to add? That was amazing. Bree, those were really great numbers. And it's so true. I actually sat next to the man who created Siri two years ago at a conference. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's actually really cool. He's a very nice man. He sold Siri to Apple. Then he went on and built Bixby for Samsung. Now he has another company, sold that to Samsung. Yeah, it's incredible to go, to look at. I think you know to go to go to your question about sustainability of biz of these businesses. You know, I feel like these companies don't feel healthy unless they're diverse. I feel, you know, I'm a very I'm an empathetic person. But you get that vibe of looking at a Deloitte and Touche where everyone looks the same and you're like, oh, it's so exhausting. You know, come on, guys, let's shake it up, shall we? And women, too. It's not just it's men and women at these organizations. But what I think is really important about sustainable companies is the health of them. And if they're not healthy and they're not a true representation of the United States, of the world, I think they're going to be in trouble and they're only going to have themselves to blame. Again, who do I, who do I have a challenge with this? HR, human resources. So I don't, I think if we could have that conversation about sustainability with HR and some of these organizations, maybe we'd have a better shot. Uh, Maybe we could also decentralize HR. But sustainability to me, and especially I do, I have a learning disability. It's been, and a lot, what a lot of people don't know about disabilities is that they're superpowers and Mm -hmm. understanding that someone with ADHD can have, I can have 75 things open, but when I need to work on my taxes, I struggle. So I will have two other programs while I'm working with my accountant or something like that. I know how to work with that. But I think just really being, I think kindness will help sustainability. Absolutely, Lauren. And Brie, you know, one of the issues that we have with disability inclusion, I think, starts from when we were at a young age and our parents would say, no, don't ask the question, don't stare, right? Mm -hmm. And so then it left us unprepared to deal with or, or to, you know, interact well with professionals with disabilities in the workplace. How do we learn to be able to engage and understand disability etiquette and have those strong relationships in the workplace where 
professionals with disabilities feel seen, feel valued, feel welcome, feel embraced? How do we begin to start bridging that, that education gap? I love that question. Mm. I love that. It's a great little ad hoc question for us. So, and that's, that's a fantastic point about not being prepared from an early age. And, you know, I think that that gets kind of added on to as we age too, when we, we become aware that there's political correctness and, oh, I think my parents call them this, but I think I'm supposed to call them something different. And, you know, oh, what's this people-centric language that I've heard about? What does that mean? And we, we often catch people that are sort of, they're afraid to enter this conversation because they're afraid of unintentionally offending someone. So, and then, you know, then there's the people who don't care and that's a different conversation. But what it boils down to for us, and we talk about this a lot amongst our team, is these two words of empathy and sympathy mm-hmm. and how they're different. So sympathy, I think, is how we're often taught to respond to situations where we don't really know what to say. So maybe if we're having a conversation with someone and their cancer treatment comes up, oh, I don't really know how to handle that. So then our, our response might be a sympathetic response. But those are the kinds where the person on the receiving end might not leave that conversation feeling great about themselves. So mm-hmm. I always ask people, which would you rather be on the receiving side of empathy or sympathy? Mm-hmm. And as long as people understand what that word empathy means, that's what they choose. And so that's what I advise is to, when you're going into those conversations, if you're not sure how to talk with a coworker who you understand might have some, some kind of health condition going on, you're not really sure where the boundaries are of how you should talk, is to use an empathetic approach, which kind of is an attempt to not put yourself in their shoes, because that can be presumptuous a bit, but instead to think, how do I want them to, to feel when they leave this conversation? Excellent, excellent advice, Bree. Thank you so much. And Lauren, for you, you know, when job seekers work with recruiters, how can they evaluate a recruiter that's going to advocate for them the way that you do? They're not going to advocate for them. Got it. Okay. Okay. They're not. So I'm different because I do, but I'm a disruptor in recruiting. They should know that the client is who pays the bill. And I do believe that there are recruiters like myself who've always done the right thing and said, you know what? This job isn't for you. Stay where you are. You're secure. You have a family. You know, this is too risky or something didn't make sense or that's just who I am. And I'm so glad that I stuck to my core as my compass, but not everyone does. So I think you really have to understand and also understand that a lot of recruiters, most recruiters work on commission and their commission comes from a fee that they that the, the client who's paying the bill, that they're paid on commission and they're doing their job. And just if we could speak about empathy, be empathetic to the person who's doing their job. And that for a lot of people, they don't realize that working with a recruiter, that's a free service. While they're the product of the finding that person for the role, the company's paying the bill and not to be tacky about it, but to be great, to be graceful. Hey, Lauren, I think you'll love to hear that at our company, we don't, we're not commissioned. That's a very important criteria. for How do you get paid then? Oh, well, there's still, there's still a fee to the client, but the individual contributor is not on a commission and that's right. I mean, that's amazing. And that's not, that's not the norm at all. Right. No, it is very much not. And I work 
only with job seekers. So I took that out of the mix. I got sick of, I'm a disruptor in recruiting. And a lot of people don't understand what that means. But when they, when they talk to me, they understand because I'm sick of the discrimination. I'm sick of people being ghosted and I'm not interested in helping HR fill a role. I have thousands of stories. I could write books that would literally make you sick of what goes on in recruiting. So, mm-hmm. but if you are working with a third party recruiter, if you are working with someone at an agency, I mean, I have some of my closest friends in the world were clients or candidates and I'm very close to them and you can have a very respectful relationship and be patient and understand how the game is played and be comfortable in asking You know, anyone who would come to me over the years, I would say, I might not be able to call you back. Same, you know, just be a relationship builder. You know, I would say that that would be the best thing for candidates. Be empathetic towards the recruiter and look to build a relationship and don't be so turned off if one job isn't for you. When you build that relationship, maybe the next one would be great for you. Write thank you notes. Say thank you for your time. So that's, I'm very much into relationship building. Thank you so much, Lauren and Bree. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this evening. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. And for everyone that joined this bowl to hear our amazing guests, thank you so much. I've enjoyed spending this hour with you. Again, Lauren and Bree, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. It was wonderful. Yes, thank you very much, Jackie. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a review and share it with a friend. Thanks to you, this podcast is now in the top 10% of downloaded podcasts. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson, and I'll talk with you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.